Growing up, my family and I grew up in northwest Washington in a small little town right on the Canadian border, and my parents made us, made sure that we were in our local church every single Sunday morning. Great church right on the Canadian border, beautiful place. I still love that place. So many great, amazing people there even to this day. But my parents, my mom and dad, made sure that every Sunday morning we were in Sunday worship, no matter what. We were going to be present. Didn't matter if I had a sleepover the night before and I wanted to stay at my friend's house, kind of going into Sunday morning. Didn't matter if my beloved Seahawks had a 10 a.m. kickoff. We were in Sunday worship. We were present. We were there. But as I think about my childhood in particular, I think about me being there every single Sunday. The question that pops up in my mind is this. Was I really there? Was I really present? Was I really there? I mean, for us as a family, every single Sunday, we were going to be there. This was the Maddox commitment for us. But that question, though, was I really there? And if I have to be honest, the answer to that question is no, not always. Wasn't always there, even though I was physically there in the pew, maybe hearing the words audibly of the sermon. Maybe I was there, in a sense, mouthing some of the words to the worship songs. I wasn't always there. See, friends, God wants our full engagement, body and soul, everything we have, heart and mind, as we come into his presence. God wants all of us fully engaged with who he is and what he's up to. And today, as we look in our text this morning, I want to show you what it looks like when God has our full engagement. And I want to show you what it looks like when God doesn't have our full engagement. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 6, continuing in our series through the book of Samuel. 2 Samuel 6, and as we look at what this looks like, as I show you this, I want to show you three different postures of worship in the presence of God. Three different postures. The first one being, number one, a posture of conformity. Second, a posture of critique. And then lastly, a posture of engagement. Posture of engagement. All right, point one. Posture of conformity. Finger in the text, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. We read this. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. Now, let me pause right there. Let's kind of catch us up 30, 45 seconds as to where we've been thus far in the story in the life of David. So up until this point, here in David's kind of timeline story, things are trending up and to the right for David. Things are going really, really well. He's become king. Yes, he's had to defeat a few enemies. There were some few skirmishes earlier on in the book of 2 Samuel. But up until this point right now, things are going really well for David. He's conquered the city of Jerusalem. He has a capital city as he becomes the new king. And the last thing that David kind of needs to do to kind of solidify or establish his kingdom is what we're going to see is bring the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord into the capital city of Jerusalem. So that's where we are picking up in verse 2. He, being David, and all his men went to Balah in Judah 
to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it in from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. Now, let's pause right there. There's really two crucial observations that I want to point out, I want to show you here in this text. The first one being kind of centered around the ark of God or the ark of the Lord. Now, this is fundamentally crucial for understanding kind of Israel's worship here at this time. I mean, the ark of God, yes, it had the Ten Commandments in there, kind of representing, reminding Israel of God's instruction to them at Mount Sinai. And yes, there was a little bit of manna, kind of reminding Israel of God's provision for them in the wilderness. But fundamentally, the ark of the Lord, or the ark of God, was this kind of symbol, this way of tangibly reminding Israel of God's presence with his people. And as Israel is bringing this ark of God, the ark of the Lord, back into Jerusalem, this is part of their kind of worship experience, their kind of worship mentality. That now God is going to be at the center. God is present with us. And that they are going to be celebrating and worshiping God being with them. But if you've been reading through the book of Samuel, and just kind of by way of reminder, First and Second Samuel was originally one long, one book and one scroll. If you've been reading through the book of Samuel... The last time that we actually read or heard about the Ark of God or the Ark of the Lord was, can anyone guess when? Philistines. Super long time ago. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. Decades and decades ago. So kind of what the narrator is now kind of telling us is that, folks, pay attention. The presence of God. The person of God has been essentially neglected for decades upon decades in the life of Israel's worship. And now as David is kind of re-becoming king, this is now going to be central to the life of Israel's worship. So it's been a very long time. So Israel better get this right. God's presence back at the center of their worship. But second observation I want to point out, I think it's kind of highlighted in yellow here, is that language of new cart. New cart. And you might be going, okay, so what's the big deal about the Ark of God or the Ark of the Lord being carried on a new cart? See, back last time when we were told that Israel was, or the Ark of the God was kind of in the storyline of Israel's scriptures, it was also described as being carried on a, quote, new cart. But it wasn't Israel carrying the Ark with a new cart. It was the Philistines. The Philistines were the ones kind of toting around the ark of God on this, quote, new cart. And so if you're kind of a careful ancient Israelite reader of this text, at this point, yes, it seems like everything is celebratory. It seems like things are trending up and to the right. It seems like there is, you know, momentum happening and things are going really well. The fanfare, the lights, the excitement. But there's this little detail that perhaps the way that Israel is worshiping and perhaps the way that Israel is honoring God is conforming a little bit to the surrounding culture. That perhaps the practices that Israel is doing right now with this, quote, new cart is now mimicking that of the Philistines. Because back in Exodus 25, Israel was told specifically how to carry the ark of God. It was with these long sort of like tent-like poles. 
And you might be wondering, okay, so why, why make such a big deal about this? Like, what's the significance about it? I mean, a new cart, isn't this like, you know, let's get the best and the brightest, the newest, the shiniest thing for God, you know, the ark of God's coming back into the city? Shouldn't we do something new in this kind of instance? But no. According to the text, Nexus 25, Israel was given these very specific instructions to carry the ark of God with these long sort of tent poles. And again, the question is, okay, so why does God care? New cart, tent poles. Why does it matter? See, the thing is, as best as we can tell, the, the kind of the long tent poles were kind of this way of symbolically showing that there is to be kind of this distance, so to speak, this little bit of a gap between the presence of God as symbolized by the ark and the people that are carrying, the Levites in particular, the ark of God. To remind Israel in a tangible way that God is, yes, good and loving, but he's also holy and righteous and powerful. And they don't just kind of like nonchalantly get to kind of tote God around on your own terms and just kind of touch God however you want to kind of be with him. That there's a holy separation there between the holiness of God and the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity. This new cart, though, on the other hand, was kind of just about utility, about just kind of getting God where God is going to go on my terms. With no sense of reverence, no sense of creating this sort of space if you will. And the question might be is, as Israel is seeking to worship God, and for us today, what about us? Do we recognize and maybe create a little bit of space as we enter into perhaps this place? Or are we kind of maybe bringing in all the things of the world as we enter into worship, kind of distracted not fully engaged, conforming a bit to what the world has to offer in God's presence. I don't know, maybe with your cell phone or something distracted. I don't know. But see, look what happens when Israel doesn't create this sort of space. Finger back in the text, verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out, and took hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. And then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Welcome to church. <laughs> but do you see what happens there? This new cart hits a bump. There's not this space. And the lack of creating that space, this posture of conformity, leads to death. This posture of conformity leads to death. But this leads us to our second point, posture of critique. Posture of critique. Now, what I want to do here is actually kind of take us to the end of the chapter a little bit and kind of narrate a few of the key things happening at the end of the chapter. And we're going to come back to the middle, but I want to look at the end of the chapter, kind of give us a kind of a bird's eye view of what's happening. So a posture of critique. Look at with me at verse 16. So as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael... The daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So again, just let me paint the scene for you a little bit. Imagine with me a bit. Okay? There's the celebration. There's the joy. God's presence is returning to the city. God's presence is going to be central to the worship and the adoration and the praise of Israel. 
Things are going, like this is a moment to worship. This is a moment to celebrate. And David, we're going to talk about him in a moment, is celebrating. He's worshiping. But off into the, kind of the side, is Michael, who, by the way, is also David's wife at this moment. And Michael, in verse 16, we read, is looking at how David is worshiping is looking at how David is interacting in the presence of God. And what does the text say? She despised him in her heart. And what we see in the life of Michael is that this spirit of criticism leads to the hardening of her heart. Hardening to the the, the things that God wants to do in her life. the, 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 The opportunities that God has for her. to For her to become the kind of person that isn't full of critique and, and despising others. See, this is what can often happen. Is that as we, just thinking about us right now, become the kinds of people that, yes, perhaps are growing and maturing and aren't like, you know, conforming to the patterns of this world and having that posture of conformity and kind of merging that with our worship, that we become the kinds of people that, yes, we want to honor God in our worship. We want to worship God in a a way that's fully engaged, fully present, not conforming to the things out there. But what can often happen if we're not careful is that that this can sometimes then lead to this posture of critiquing where we might look at other people, other ministries, other churches, and go, they're not worshiping how I would worship. They're not honoring God the way that I think they should honor. Because, you know, my theological convictions have gotten to me to this place, and this is what I, you know, da, 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 and then that spirit of critique can, get to, can happen. Where, yes, we're not maybe conforming necessarily, but if we're not careful, does that often not lead to that posture of critique at times? And we have to, friends, Guard our hearts from that spirit of criticism, that spirit that looks down at other people and the way they might worship God or honor God or, yes, have your convictions. Yes, seek to be faithful to the teaching of the text. Seek to be faithful to what God's word is saying. But, again, especially in our cultural moment where it is so easy to vilify and to look down at other people, This is why it's so important, as Proverbs 4 says, to guard our hearts. Because out from it flow the springs of life. So a posture of critique leading to hardening. Which leads, though, to the third point. A posture of engagement. A posture of engagement. Again, let's put our finger back in the text. Let's go back up to verse 12 for a moment. Verse 12. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox on the fattened animal. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephah. 
And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And again, as this is happening, Michael, is, her, his wife, is kind of critiquing David a little bit. And David responds at the end in verse 21 to Michael and says, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me prince or ruler over all Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. Friends, do you see the difference between the, free, the previous two postures and here David? This posture of fully engaged. Fully engaged to the point where he does not care even if his own wife is critiquing him. He is not living for the pleasure and and the satisfaction of what other humans are thinking in this moment. His attention, his devotion, the way that he is worshiping the Lord Almighty is done in such a way where twice in verse 21 he says, It is before the Lord I am worshiping. That this is where his gaze is. This is where his attention is before the Lord. But also, notice this. Notice so many of the verbs there in that passage. He's celebrating. He's dancing. He's even wearing kind of a different kind of clothing, the linen ephod there. My point is this. That this sort of kind of worship posture of engagement involves David's body. That David's body is involved in this. That he's celebrating, he's dancing, his body is moving as he is worshiping. This isn't just like kind of David just in his head kind of mentally thinking good thoughts about God. No, no, no. This is like a full engagement with who God is and in a response to what God has done. In other words, our bodies matter in worship. This is why Paul later in the New Testament will say, do not, don't you know, church, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is why the word worship in the New Testament is the same word that's used to literally bow down. Like it is a word that denotes physical action. And this is why for David... He becomes this, yes, imperfect, but also this example of a man who worships with full attention and engagement on who God is. As his story continues, and many of you know this, his his story continues. Through, yes, the ups and downs and the trials of even his own son Absalom betraying him, and his own sin with Bathsheba, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, through all of those crazy circumstances, David lives a life of full engagement in worship with God. To the point where he can write things in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To the point where he can pen probably the most famous psalm, Psalm 23, even through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Even to the point in Psalm 51 where he can confess openly in worship before God. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And the case that I want to make for you this morning is that this posture of worship that we see all throughout the life of David begins here. Begins with this posture of not really paying attention to what other people are thinking. 
not really concerned about the perception of am I meeting the standards of the people around me? But no, my attention, the one that I seek to live and to please is God and God alone. And this is that posture of engagement. And see, friends, this is what I want for you. This is what I think the text wants for you this morning. Is that this posture of engagement, which leads for David to this life of transformation, leads to this life of abundance, leads to this life of knowing God in a deep, intimate, holy way. Not like the posture earlier in the story of conformity, where we're kind of merging some of the practices of this world and I mean, because that led to death. And maybe that doesn't lead to death in like a physical sense, but as we conform more and more to the patterns of this world and merge that with our worship, does that not create more and more separation between us and God? Does that not lead to a sort of kind of spiritual death in those moments? Or that posture of critique that just kind of leads us to this place of kind of hardening our hearts towards others into the work that God wants to do in our lives? That spirit of like, I know better, I can do it better, I I can think better than that church, that pastor, so on and so forth. You kind of fill in the blank. And what we end up doing is hardening our hearts to the work that God wants to do in us and through us. But friends, this posture of engagement that's just open and honest and, can I just say, vulnerable vulnerable to the, to the softening work that God wants to do in our lives. This is the posture that, friends, the text is inviting us to today. And so, friends, you know, I want to ask the worship team to come up now. And as I ask the worship team to, to join us and come up, I have a Simple question for all of us this morning. What's our posture? What's your posture? Is it a posture of conformity? Because that's just going to lead to death. Is it a posture of critique? That's just going to lead to hardening of our own hearts. Or is it a posture of engagement? Friends, what is your posture? Any more appropriate song to sing 